You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. back to the Regeneration Rising podcast. My name is Taylor Mulia. I'm the new Agrarian Program Colorado Manager. And today I'm interviewing Jeffrey Van. We had an awesome conversation about his work at the Rogue Farm Corps in the Changing Hands program. And also in his personal life, he was a farmer at several different places and now helps people develop their farm business plans. So I had a great time talking to Jeffrey and I hope you enjoy our interview. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for being on our podcast today. My first question for you is tell us where you're calling from. And if I invited 20 people over for dinner at your house tomorrow night, what would you make for us? That is a great question. First of all, thank you for having me, Taylor. Um, Very happy to chat with you today and uh, whoever's listening. I am currently actually in Minnesota. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, uh, as we'll probably talk about in a second, but, um, my, my mother who is Chinese was born and raised in Minnesota, which is uh, a whole nother story. And she kind of recently returned home, uh, so to speak, uh, from Hong Kong where, uh, I was born and raised and where she had been living for a while. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm visiting I'm visiting my grandmother. Her mother is still here and uh, is 95. So um, cherish any opportunity I have to spend with with them. Oh, that's super sweet. Are you? Um, do you cook at all? If I did invite people I over, do. okay, I do. would that not scare yes. the crap yes. out of you? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. That is. It's actually one of the one of the reasons I. One of, one of the parts of farming that I love um, is the cooking part of it. I think it's one of the initial curiosities I had about farming was actually a curiosity about food and um, recognizing that I think a, a good a good cook, a good sh- chef even uh, can do incredible work, but they will always be limited by the quality of their ingredients. So um, not that I consider myself a good cook or a good chef, but I, I was interested uh, in understanding the original source of food more, especially having grown up with everything being imported um, and then being primarily in, yeah, for, for my life until until I first stepped onto a farm, all food probably had traveled a, a great distance to get to me. And um, I wanted to see what it was like to have food um, that was fresh and close. And boy, did it make a difference. If I were to cook for 20 people, let me just answer the question instead of, if I were to cook for 20 people, um, this is something that I did quite regularly on, uh, one of the farms I worked at, maybe not 20 people every night, but sometimes I definitely build a meal around what is available. Like, what do we have a lot of in the walk-in? What was, you know, what got back, what came back from market? What was unsellable? Which packages of meat are broken, um, that need to be used. And so that really 
that guides my my cooking like my mass cooking philosophy um one of my pet peeves is just in life is waste and you know that could be like waste of time or waste of energy or whatever waste of money but um i think food food waste definitely falls into that one of my go-tos i'm still not answering the question one of my go-tos is um okay how about this we had some dairy goats on one of the farms that i worked at that were kind of just for us sort of homestead scale dairy goats I made a lot of cheese. I was making cheese, I don't know, three, four times a week, which is a lot of whey. And we wanted to use as much of everything as possible. And the way, I don't know if you've had like raw whey, but it's, it can, it's kind of sour. Like it's, it can be a little funky. So I, I devised a, uh, a sort of way to use a lot of that way, a way to use whey. Um, which is as part of uh, one of the ingredients in um, polenta. I made a lot of polenta. Oh, nice. Ooh, that's a good idea. Um, don't use 100% whey. You still have to mix it with another cooking liquid, you know, if you're lucky, with some broth okay. or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I would, I, when I was feeling really saucy, I would I would uh, go up to like 50% whey um, as the part of, of the polenta. Um, nice. Yeah. And then... Yeah, it really is driven driven by driven by. Yeah, that that question's not fair. It's like, what do you have in your freezer? It depends. Yeah, but yeah, but do you but you like cooking, and that's something that is exciting to you and relates to your farming. Very much so. Yeah, that was like that was the the entry point for me um, was cooking was wanting to be closer to food, and I was considering at one point going to culinary school. Totally different life path, and. yeah, it was through, you know, an interesting an interesting cooking food that I found farming and from that became uh I think aware of uh how big of a how big of a world our food system is and and how, you know, we're all inextricably connected to it. Um and farming really kind of sits at the center of it and that was um yeah, uh, you know, around policy and labor and climate and yeah, and hunger and and, uh, and also joy and community and um, so many, I think, important parts of uh, human life. Farming, for me, sat at the center of it. So um, food was the gateway. Farming ended up being kind of the answer to everything. Speaking of, um, let's kind of go back to the beginning of your, if you want to start at the beginning of your career or the beginning of your life, uh, give us a rundown. You've been all over the place and done a lot of things. So yeah, tell us your story. Yeah. Um, like I said, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I truly did not consider uh, farming as, um, it didn't even occur to me growing up that that there were farmers that food came from somewhere right is there an agricultural community anywhere close by where you grew up in mainland china there is um in hong kong certainly not i think uh land the land in hong kong is too valuable as real estate residential or commercial to be used for farming and that's why the you know the city is so vertical um because you could just get more out of you know, every acre, uh, on the ground. Uh, I think once upon a time, it probably was quite a bustling agricultural community. Certainly. Yeah. Good soil and temperate and yeah, nobody, nobody really grew anything. I, there was like one family friend who, 
had um, one like raised bed on a on their apartment building rooftop and grew tomatoes, and that blew my mind. I was like, yeah, could could not could not understand how nor why. Uh, like it really just wasn't part of my consciousness. I I yeah. So I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Came to the U.S. when I was fourteen for boarding school. And after college, just wanted to get out of, get out of my head and get out, get out of my head and get out of cities and get into my body and, you know, be dirtier and realer, maybe. (laughs) And uh, that, that brought me to northern New Mexico, just north of a small town, small but famous town called Taos up there, where there was a goji berry farm willing to take willing to feed and house me as long as I put in um, half a day's work, five days a week. How how big are we talking goji berry farm? Like that seems, I've never really heard of that, but I don't know why there wouldn't be goji berry farms. <laughs> totally. at, the, at the time, I don't, I never fact check this, but at the time, I think they were the largest single goji berry producer in the United States. Um, it was like 20 acres of goji berries, maybe. So not big at all by my standards. I mean, I don't know. Um, maybe that is pretty big. It might have been smaller than that, actually. I'm, th- I'm like mapping it out, walking it in my head. It was not 20 acres. It was smaller than that. It was quite a young operation, um, but the farmers had been on that land for a long time. And I really fell in love with them. I fell in love with the farmers. I fell in love with being on, yeah, just being kind of grounded. I think so many people and so many of the farmers that I work with now have that same experience of um, growing up somewhat removed from farming, removed from where our food comes from, nature, soil. And by some chance, by some chance, yeah, finding an opportunity to, to dip a toe in and just being overwhelmed with, uh, with joy and the sense of potential and possibility and, and that, uh, yeah, that incredible, creative, like beautiful farming spirit in people. It was ignited for me, for sure. That was a, a life-changing time. Um, also just being in community on, on the farm. I, I absolutely loved that. I think I'd been craving that my whole life and yeah, I still, I still do. And it's, it's for me, it's, it, it really, really, it works well. So you kind of fell in love with farming in that, on that one operation, then did you stick with farming or did you kind of go jump around and do some other stuff for a while? I jumped around. Um, I actually moved to New York City for a year to learn about, to work at a whole animal butchery and to theoretically learn to process whole animals. Um, This is sort of now expanding my understanding of food systems and yeah, wanting wanting to see if that retail side of things, getting closer back again to the culinary side of things, if that would be interesting to me. But I really, I missed, I missed farming and only lasted a year in New York City. Really not my environment. I think it works for a lot of people, but uh, I am not one of those. We were talking about this. We have really similar backgrounds and I, my experience with butchery was like, I would watch the sun rise and I would watch the sunset every day from that tiny window. And I would just, it, it was just bizarre. It was crazy to think that a whole day had gone by and I hadn't been outside or maybe once or twice. And, um, so yeah, I can see how that was just like kind of trying to find that middle balance between like, Ooh, I could live in a city near people and kind of do that life, but still kind of feel connected to my food. But I think ultimately the, the actual connection to nature is what you were wanting. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's eventually what I, yeah, it it, it brought me back. I, 
while I was in New York, couldn't stop thinking about farming. And one of the friends I'd made farming in New Mexico, she and I began to, we had always kind of, you know, we'd be out weeding carrots or whatever it is. And we would, we would just fantasize, like, what would we do if this were our operation? If this were our farm, what would we do? Um, That conversation never stopped. So I was living in New York and she was living in Northern California. And then she brought in um, her good friend who was living in Seattle. And the three of us continued this sort of fantasy conversation that wouldn't let us go. And so we eventually started to turn it into a business plan. And yeah, after about six months, probably of, of pretty regular meeting, you know, from three totally different locations across the country and, and, and kind of fleshing out this idea, we decided to to make a go for it to to try to try our hand at farming and at starting our own operation and we identified the Willamette Valley so the area kind of in Oregon from Portland down to Eugene and that that valley between the coastal range and the Cascades we identified that as sort of our our target geography aiming to be close to one of the the major um city centers and yeah, I, I moved out to a farm outside of Eugene to just dial in my livestock skills because I didn't really have much livestock experience and we knew that we wanted to raise livestock. We, yeah, we, we were really interested in carbon sequestration and were, yeah, recognizing of livestock properly, mal- properly managed livestock's potential to, to play a really positive role in yeah, our activities with climate change. And yeah, we spent about a year looking for land. I was working on this farm, learning about all aspects of of animal husbandry. And there's some details mixed in here, but eventually we didn't end up in, in, in the Willamette Valley. We, we expanded our farm team and we were fortunate to be able to access land that one of our team members, his mother had a piece of land up in central Washington state and was looking for farmers to, to farm it. And here we were with a business plan and no land. So we kind of, yeah, we, we joined forces. And in 2017, Spoonful Farm was born in um, a little town called Thorpe in central Washington. Mostly what did you guys raise and grow? Yeah, we did. Um, so we did a bit of everything. We were, you know, aiming eventually for something close to what we wanted to, to try to do a, as close to a full diet situation as possible. We were raising beef, lamb, layers for eggs. We had bees. We had dairy goats. That was really just for ourselves. But yeah, we had dairy goats. And then we had diverse market garden, mixed veg. We also planted an orchard that, yeah, we never fully saw fruit from because we planted quite young trees. And... I think that's it. We tried our hand at all sorts of funny things like raising insects, you know, to feed our chickens. We we thought about building out a a commercial commercially licensed dairy to to actually do our dairy operation in a bigger way, but we ended up on yeah, we ended up on just like oh, we also did value added products. So we rented space at a commercial kitchen in town and processed a bunch of our vegetables into fermented fermented vegetable products most of our yeah by the end of it yeah we were producing a um fermented hot sauce that was well loved by our customers 
you know, I, we were talking yesterday and you said for a number of reasons and her personal stuff, the, the land was sold or maybe you just weren't able to continue the farm, you know, and I think, you know, there's this like closing down a farm is such a sensitive thing. And I, I want actually, you know, I was reading a book recently that was trying to take the, the stigma out of closing a farm and, you know, like being really honest with yourself and saying, is this working? is this really working? Like, are we all happy? Is this business actually working? And making a decision based on that instead of based on just keep trudging forward. I think it's everyone has to make their own decisions. So what were your biggest lessons from that farm after you guys decided to kind of move on? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think just one note on that, and I think this, this will probably come up later in our conversation as well, but you're right that it, it feels like such an emotional, intense part of being a, of, of being a farm or being a farmer is, is closing it down. And I, I think that's because we, we really commit so much of ourselves into it. It's unlike any other, um, any other conventional profession. Like, I mean, it's your life out there and you're generally living on farm or living very close to there. So it's completely tied to your, like your personal community. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot and it's emotional. I, I learned so much from, from, my time at Spoonful Farm. I am, in, you know, eternally grateful for for that opportunity. It is, for one, it is uh, an experience that I bring to my current work with Rogue Farm Corps. We we were very lucky in that we were we were essentially we were incubated. Like our farm project, our farm dream was incubated with very little risk to our personal selves. We were all fortunate to to earn a steady salary regardless of the farm's profitability which we know in the first few years is is it's near impossible that your farm will be in the black in the first few years did the property owner pay you guys or or were you working off farm jobs or what yeah the property owner paid us yeah the property owner paid us we were so technically the property owner was also the business owner and so we were all you know employees but yeah the she she wasn't a farmer, didn't come from a farming background herself, so really trusted us with all of the operations and really, I mean, with everything except for the the liability, the risk, I guess. So in a way, we yeah, we got the best of all worlds in that in that situation. Learned a lot. Learned about definitely learned a lot about 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 farming and how it can consume your consume your personal life and just yeah. I feel grateful that I, you know, left that farm with my friendships intact, but just having spoken to other farmers, I know that that's not always the case, that times the farm does drive people apart. And that's really sad to me. Also, I mean, how to, how to run a business, how to build a brand, all of that, I think, and of course, how to farm, how to grow all this stuff, all of that is is best learned by doing. I think there are some things that you can learn in theory in a classroom, but there are other, yeah, other 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 things that that you really have to learn by learn by doing. And I think farming and running a business both fall into that category. And we also learned. I learned a lot of what not to do. Was there anything that shocked you? You know, because I think. As for me, and I think for a lot of the folks that, you know, do jump around the, the internships and apprenticeships for a while, I guess like you have this idea, you're like, well, I do the work every day. I could just do it for myself and I could just 
run my own business? Is, is there anything that going from going from that mindset to the actual person who runs a business, like, was there anything that shocked you that you were like, just like, Oh my gosh, that was so different than what I thought it was going to be at, you know, is there anything in particular you can remember? Yeah, I think it was shocking. Oh, there's so many ways to to approach this question. I have to try to try, I'll try to pick one and hone in. Um, building soil is one. I think generally when you're joining somebody's operation, they have probably been doing it for some time and have um, their soil built. Also, just having having observation of of your of the land and of the environment is another. We all moved from outside of this community to this place that none of us had ever lived in which none of us had lived previously. So I think there's great value if if you can to moving to a place and just like work with another farmer if you can, or just like watch, take it, take it. And if you can take a season, take a season to watch and just see what, see what happens. You know, we were doing like before we got there and, and throughout the first year, the first season, we were looking at like historical weather historical weather reports, you know, like it was generally, you know, in the month of August, this is the general, the high and the low or whatever, but nothing could have prepared us for actually experiencing it. And it really takes that, that, that personal physical experience, that intuition that farmers do build over time to, to understand that, like what this feels like right now means that my plant is a certain way. And, and that, yeah, that, that comes that can only come with experience. So, you know, when you go on to, when you go work for someone else, generally they're, they have all of that stored in their brain and, and they're making those decisions and you don't really think about it because you're told what to do. When you're fine for yourself, you have to tell yourself what to do and make those decisions. And it gets hard. It gets hard. So now you're working at Rogue Farm Corps with the Changing Hands program. Um, do you want to talk about your job and your motivation for doing the work you do now? Yeah. So Rogue Farm Corps, our mission is to train and equip the next generation of farmers and ranchers in Oregon. And Rogue Farm Corps for a long time has been, its primary activity has been training programs. So really looking for, again, going back to this sort of theory of education, looking, it was it was a couple of farmers who who weren't born into farming families who wanted to, to farm, and they were looking for an opportunity to learn hands-on which they believed in, which I believe is the, the, the best way to, to learn to, how to, how to actually farm. And they, yeah, they, this was, it was in the Rogue Valley. So Southern Oregon, hence the name Rogue Farm Corps. They kind of strung together intern programs, which eventually expanded across the whole state, um, sort of bridging host farms who have sort of that, that learned, perennial wisdom of being farmers with interns, people who are coming into, into farming for the first time. Yeah, that program grew and expanded and we developed a curriculum to support host farmers. I think it's just because just because someone is a good farmer doesn't mean they're a good teacher. And that's uh, something that we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to, to make sure that our interns had a complete sort of educational experience on, on these farms. So the, the program continued to expand and, and grow more robust and also grow more complete and holistic. And we realized that we were training these farmers. We expanded it to have an apprenticeship program. So sort of a, a next level after internship sort of training program. And, and we realized that we were training all of these uh, people to be farmers, but 
there was still a huge step missing, which is how do you start a farm business? How do you find land? How do you find capital? Again, like working with people who aren't inheriting the resources to start farms, whether it's inheriting land or inheriting the capital resources to buy land, just like from the beginning, from the outset of the mission, working with people who are inheriting, say, farm farming knowledge or farming experience. Uh, and yeah, so the Changing Hands program, we're focused on farmland preservation really through the lens of keeping farmers on the land. And we we work with we work with the senior generation of landowners. There are uh, a lot of them, and there are increasingly more. The average age of a farmer continues to increase. I think nationally, it's in the seventies now. So we're expecting in the next twenty years nationally, and this trends in Oregon as well. We are expecting two thirds of the farmland in the state to change hands in the next twenty years which is a huge opportunity for new farmers to to take the reins and continue farming or not if we're not proactive or if we're not prepared it becomes an opportunity for for development or an opportunity for private non-farming land holding or an opportunity for the bigger conventional growers to to buy it and and in my personal belief apply um apply farming farming practices to the land that that create more problems than they solve. So yeah, the changing hands program right now we're working, we're working primarily with beginning farmers sort of hitting that target population of people who are sort of in the first few years of farming or maybe getting ready to start their own farming operations um, and helping them work on their business plans, helping them understand different options they have for accessing capital, different options they have and strategies they have for accessing land yeah, we're a small organization, which uh, allows for us to be nimble. You know, I, I think it's interesting. One of the reasons that I was like so fired up when we were talking about you were you have this such this this personal experience, like you went at the farm with a business plan in your hand and you were like, granted, you were planning for it to happen in the Willamette Valley, which has a little more water and a little different climate than what you actually went for. But, you know, you take what you can get. So you have this personal experience with building business plan and going for it. And now you're training these and at least, I guess not training, but you're helping them find resources that will help them in the process of doing their own thing. Um, what are some of the biggest sort of pieces of advice that you share with people? I know we, I took a couple notes from when you, when we were talking and I loved your first one. Um, actually, I love all of these. Um, don't try to do everything yourself. So do you want to expand upon that? Sure. Yeah. And I, I have the, uh, I appreciate you taking notes and I have them open here as well. Uh, yeah. You, you had some such great points when we talked earlier. So yeah, I wanted to make sure that we mentioned them all. So yeah. So don't try to do everything yourself. Go for it. I think that there's a, a, a massive misunderstanding, a massive myth in this idea of an American farmer, of, of what that person looks like, of what that person does. And I think part of that extends to this idea that the, that you have to overwork. I mean, overwork like work is is glorified, especially in farming, and that you know it's you against the world in a way. And I just find that as an idea and also out of practice, I find that unsustainable and also just ineffective. Honestly, I think that I think that yeah, having a farm team brings so much so much goodness to a farm life um, and to a farm business, a farm operation, not only, you know, are you able to 
share the, the burden of the work that you must do with other people, which I think is huge and, and gives you a sense of, gives you some insurance for, for unexpected happenings, just having more bodies, but also we're all good at different things and we all enjoy different things. And I think it's important to listen to that because if we force ourselves to do things that we're not good at or that we don't enjoy, we'll do them badly or we won't want to do them any anymore. And both of those lead to lead lead down in, on that path towards a farm failing. So bookkeeping, for example, I mean, this is an, this is something that that comes up a lot for with the farmers that I work with. It was something that came up for us when we were farming. We had some farm team members who loved to who loved spreadsheets, and so like that was easily their job. But what about like taxes and like taking care of payroll and all of these things? Well, no one wanted to do that, so we outsourced it. I think that was a good move, and that's something that I encourage all of the beginning farmers that I work with to consider. If you, yeah, if you if you don't, yeah, you don't know you don't what you're getting yourself into. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean. We we've made this mistake in so many in so many ways, and some of them for some of them the stakes have been small, and for some of them the stakes could have been much larger. For example, raising insects. You know that was a really low stakes project, but we just wanted to see, and we realized very quickly that we did not know what we were doing, and so we stopped because we didn't want to waste our time doing that. And I think that if we were serious about that, we would have wanted to bring a professional on to join our team, or if we were really you know, passionate about feeding insects to our chickens, which is what the original idea was, we could buy them from from another producer. And I think that ultimately there's a there's a mathematical case for this being uh, a better path that, yeah, we're going to be more efficient at the things that we enjoy. And again, we'll do a better job at them too. So yeah, the time that we spend and the energy that we spend doing the things that we don't want to do, that is that is precious and valuable, especially like during the farm season. And that's time that's not going towards your other activities, your other operations. And that's money theoretically not being made. So a lot of people get started and then they're like, oh, I'll figure that out later. You know, I'll sort that out when it comes. And what happens is that you keep taking on those expenses. You keep taking on those responsibilities yourself to save your books because you can't pay an employee or you can't pay somebody to do your payroll or whatever, or your taxes. And then, but the thing is, is like what you're proposing is to work that into the business plan from the beginning. And if those numbers don't chalk out from the beginning, you shouldn't be starting a business. And like, I understand like that is so easy to say, to say, and it's so hard to get those numbers right from the beginning. You know, I think that's something I had a huge time, a really hard time with myself. Like I didn't even know how much feed a pig eats in a, you know, in my climate, in a, you know, the breed that I happen to get my hands on, like how much feed does that? So the numbers going into the business were really tricky to pin down, but I feel like I did not even have that mindset of like, you know, I, I didn't even have sort of, I I was just like, keep the book so lean, keep everything so lean in in order for us to make it work. And so, and I think what you're proposing is like, no, put it on the books, like, see if you can figure it out, up your numbers over here in order to make this work, because you do need to do that. Totally. There are a lot of good ideas out there around the lean farm and all of that, but Nothing, nothing compares to actually running the numbers and the risk that you take running the numbers, the cost to you running the numbers before you get kind of wrapped up in a farm operation is your time. Whereas figuring it out when you go 
it costs you it can cost you a lot lot more once your operation is already underway and yeah i mean just to to yeah one to one one point that i think you kind of alluded to here that i'm also a, a huge huge proponent for is paying yourself i think that too often business plans don't include include maybe a steady owner draw or or just in, include that that yeah include yourself you're the most important part of it and this ties I mean, there there are many reasons to do it. I think it's it's important for you to to value yourself in that way, just like as far as self empowerment goes, right? In like a deeper sense, <laughs> you are worth it. You're valuable. Yeah, and and also, I mean, practically speaking, lenders generally don't take those operations seriously, and they they aren't they're less willing to lend to an operation that doesn't show the owner being paid from the operation. I think there is an exception to this, which is if if you are working, say, an off-farm job and you can prove, you know, your stability in some other way, which we can totally talk about. But if you are saying, say, being a professional full-time farmer and you're not paying yourself, what that says to a lender is that this person is this person is is not is not consistently able to support themselves. And this means like I don't know what the rest of their their personal balance sheet looks like, what their net worth looks like, but chances are that they chances are that they can't that they can't not pay themselves for the duration of this loan say 20 years uh, 20 year mortgage to buy a farm or something and that becomes risk that a, a lender won't take and two i'm finding that a lot of people when they don't i mean again this is this is so easy to say <laughs> it, it is like an objective you know, follow these rules and you'll be successful. But I do think it's something that people breeze right past when they're when they're so excited and they're like, oh my gosh, I have a piece of land and this is a possibility and I really want to raise chickens and feed my community. And, you know, and, but I do think, you know, especially for people our age that are, you know, a lot of my friends are buying houses and I'm, I've been farming for a long time. I don't have a savings that is big enough to buy a house at this point. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, some of the pay that you get in farming is the lifestyle is the the intrinsic benefits of working outside and being with nature and eating good food and having community and yes those things are all wonderful but at the end of the day like you know if if you're considering ever having equity or ever having kids or buying a house or you know really seriously thinking about retirement or any of this stuff like we are entitled to that. Like we are entitled to, to, to at least try and feel financially successful. And I think it doesn't really dawn on us until <laughs> like late twenties, mid thirties is like, dang, I got to get my stuff together. So that's really good. That's a that's super good advice is like, put yourself on that sheet and work backwards instead of selling what you want and working forwards. Put yourself on that sheet, work backwards, put Put if you don't want to do bookkeeping, put like a monthly bookkeeping fee on the sheet and work backwards. If you know that you want to have a website, put your domain, like put everything on that and work backwards, and then see where you pencil out and 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 then start to move things around to make it work. But it's it's really you're creating a priority stack and and your personal your personal life goals and your life needs have to fit into that. And part of that is paying yourself for that, but also like recognizing, you know, the completeness of what you need in your life. Maybe it's taking a two week, two week vacation every year. Maybe it's taking two week vacation during the summer every year. Maybe it's that you need to put enough aside for a kid's college fund, or maybe you need to be helping 
to pay for parents' medical needs, whatever it is. I mean, all of that has to be considered because if those are your personal sort of non-negotiables, if those sit on the top of your priority stack and they aren't worked into your business plan to match that, eventually those those circumstances, those situations will come come to the fore and you'll have to make a decision. And if your priority stack was accurate, then it means your farm loses out on that and and things start to go south. And we've seen that happen many times. I think this is part of part of the, the recipe for burnout. Um, but also, you know, we can plan for that. If you know that you need to take X number of vacations throughout the throughout the throughout the year and you also want to raise livestock, then that probably means that you need to expand your farm team to make sure that someone can be there when you're not there. And that person then is on the books. And so you need to make sure that you can pay them and still pay yourself and afford what you need to do. Yeah, it's all wrapped up. And that's, I think, one of the beauties of farming. Also, one of the challenges is that there's, as far as I can tell, there are few ways to separate your personal life from your farming life. It's different from other professions in that sense. Yeah, one of the other things that you mentioned too, which I loved, was dream smaller. <laughs> which I now appreciate fully um, in my at this point in my career. But talk a little bit mo- more about that. Totally. I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing that people want to farm. That people who weren't born into farming want to devote their lives to to growing food for other people. It's a miracle knowing the statistics on on how on how small businesses fail. I mean, it's like eighty percent of small businesses fail in the first five years and then throw on top of that, the unpredictability of farming of, of climate change, like totally changing the way that people are farming in places that they've farmed for, you know, decades, the unpredictability of, of markets shifting and changing and, and, and competition and, and yeah. And especially if you're starting a new operation, it's a miracle point is it's a miracle to me that people, you know, generally know all of this and still they want to commit their, their lives and remember, this is more than just their professional life. I mean, they're committing their lives, their personal heart and soul to farming. That that blows me away. That blo- absolutely blows me away. I think one potentially one potential sort of shadow that's attached to that to that beautiful idea and that beautiful fantasy and dream is is I think a little a little too much idealism. I'm not saying this is you know universally the case, but it's just. It's what I've seen, and it's. I, I think it's a great starting place for any farm and any farm vision is to start at that pure ideal. But again, I think that ultimately you have to run the numbers to it. So, um, your dream, your dream is probably big at the beginning, and that's. It's good to to log that. And the farmers I work with, I I, I make sure that we start at that place, at that big dream, and that's written down somewhere so that they don't lose that because that's the heart and soul and like the spark of farming and people. And, and I, yeah, I, I just have no desire and, and no, it's just not, it would be, it would be a, a true crime to, to extinguish that in people. But I think the job then is to, to dial it in and to, you're still dreaming, but just dreaming smaller, dreaming practically. And that means, you know, figuring out what parts of your dream are achievable and what time frame and matching it matching it out again to the business plan as much as you can as much as you can pencil everything out that will only help you and definitely you're not going to be 100% on on the nose writing a business plan and matching you know matching the the numbers out but it will really really help and it's something that 
we did and for Spoonful Farm, and I, I wish that we did more of, honestly. Every time we did it, it felt like a chore and it felt painstaking and we just wanted to like grow the stuff and sell the stuff. But we we learned a lot of lessons by by actually sitting down and crunching the numbers with chickens, for example. We were selling eggs in the in the full production season when, when the chickens are all laying heavily and fully. We were selling them for $9 a dozen and on the off season, we were selling them for $10 a dozen. We had 300 birds. We were buying grain from a local, from a local grower who was, yeah, all milling it and 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 shipping it to us in big totes himself. And all of our all of our inputs were what we we thought they were financially economically efficient. Um, and we thought that you know at the cost that we were selling the eggs for, always sold out. We never there was never a single unaccounted dozen. We thought that we would. There was no way that our egg operation was unprofitable, but. We went through the exercise of, of doing a feasibility study or a know your cost to grow study on our on our egg operation, and we discovered that we would have had to, at our current prices and our current all our current inputs, we would have had to expand our operation by nearly two hundred percent. We would need like nine hundred. We would add. We would have had to add six hundred birds. Runching the numbers was the only way we were able to see that, and you know we were able to like play around with different scenarios to try to to try to like, what if we raise the, the price to a 10 and 11 instead of nine and 10? What about 11 and 12? And, and sure, like that helps. But you know, it's that type of mapping out that helps you determine where you are. And we could have raised the price to, to like 13 and 14, keeping our current flock size, which was what we wanted to do. And that would have made the eggs, the, the chicken operation profitable. But then the question becomes, will people still buy the eggs for that price? And uh, we were we were not sure. Yeah, you drop an egg on the floor and there's a dollar. <laughs> it's tragic. <laughs> yeah, that is tragic. It makes egg collecting a whole different activity. It does. Totally. Yeah. And and yeah, I think it's it's so interesting too. Were we talking about did you guys have had you allocated overhead for that too, or was that simply just the cost of goods sold? Yeah, that was that was the egg operation in isolation. So not yeah, no overhead factored into that, no marketing and sales factored into that. Labor was factored into that. Like just in labor, but not the labor of going to market and standing at the farmers the farmers market booth three times a week. Granted, we were selling meat and veg at the same places, so we always it's hard to calculate that. Hard to calculate that. Yeah, whenever we did our, we had each of our enterprises separated on their own sort of. They had their own sort of categories, and and we had their so yeah, we we separated them on their they 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 were like their own tabs of the spreadsheet essentially. And then we had the labor tab, the overhead tab, and the marketing tab as their own tabs. And what we did is we we estimated how much of our labor went to each enterprise, and we had that flow into um, those other enterprises. Same with um, overhead, same with marketing, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah, so they totally. Pay for a share, like their fair share of the kind of whole farm expenses. Right. And that's so wild that it, you guys are like $10 a dozen is so wild for my area. I mean, I even live in a pretty wealthy area and people still like bulk at the $8 a dozen that I pay. And so, yeah. And it, it really goes to show too. I mean, that probably was the best for the land. Like you guys are in a pretty dry area and you can do such great things with that mobile coop and strategically graze and strategically get, you know, weed mitigation and all that. And you know, what's, what's best for the land sometimes really isn't isn't the best option even even now if that's heartbreaking totally and this is this is all i should say like i i think you're right it's best for the land and it's to me the failure here is is systemic the failure is that our food the the cost of our food is 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 warped by 
by larger sort of systemic forces. Food is too cheap, which is kind of a controversial thing to say, but generally food, like the food that we see in the grocery store, the mass produced food, which I understand is a need, like we need to feed people now. So I'm not going to get into the whole conversation about, about, but what it doesn't account for is beyond being a lot of the food that we see in the grocery store being subsidized heavily, it is also never, never accounting for the environmental costs, nor maybe the public health costs that it definitely does. I mean, you can quantify the, those costs that they have on our communities, on our society at large. And labor too, you know, a lot of the, especially, I mean, there's a reason we're not a, a, a giant nation of vegetables. It's, it, it takes hands to pick those crops. And a lot of times, you know, I've been learning more and more about how our entire system is built on the fact that we we mistreat people. So that's that's why our food for a number of reasons, that's why our food is so cheap. And so our eggs look so expensive, but really they're accounting. And the thing is too, I think it's important to note is that sometimes when we don't put our own labor on our in our books, we are doing the same thing. And we when when we underpay folks for doing our labor it's um it's not it's not different and so it needs to really get put into that spreadsheet as painful as that might be exploitation of soil exploitation of self exploitation of stories i mean it's all happening right and yeah yep. i think that yeah there's 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 a lot a, a lot of work to be done there here's a question that i feel like people don't talk about enough is the side hustle like what do you think about farming and having a side hustle what are your thoughts not that you have to have the answer of <laughs> the almighty answer to things but you see a lot of farmers you talk to a lot of farmers what is your how does that usually go and what do you, what's your advice on that i think that the side hustle is a viable option i think that i i'm i'm yeah i'm not here to 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 tell anybody how to live their lives but I am here theoretically to help you if you do want to be a farmer to help you be successful at it. And I think that the side hustle is a way to be successful at it. As long as people are fully uh, aware upfront and, you know, don't hold any illusions over themselves as to, as to what exactly is going on. And by that, I mean that like people, if people know that their side hustle is, is funding a farm that is, that is not making money and they feel good about that, then that's okay. I, yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a little more dangerous if, if someone is working a side hustle and, you know, using that to sort of finance a farm and they're not happy with the side hustle and they're planning on like transitioning into full-time farming and they don't have, you know, a, you know, a clear path to get there. I think that that can be dangerous and mm -hmm. that can't be sustained and that will lead to, failure either through burnout or through you know through through loss of like ex expiring resources you know if you're say yeah i don't know what what a what a side hustle be i don't know say you're you're doing like marketing work virtually like yeah remote work marketing work on the side and you're good at it but you really don't like it but you just do it because yeah the farm needs it right now yeah if you're if you're clear about how you can transition into the full farm finances and you have a plan and you're and you're working towards that then i think that can be okay as long as again you're fully fully aware of what you're doing or alternatively maybe you do remote marketing work and you absolutely love it you do that 20 hours a week and then you spend the rest of your time 
farming and, you know, you go to farmer's markets and you have this farm business that is, you know, not making money, but not losing that much money that you can't make up in your other job and you're happy, then that's okay. That's great. I I feel good about that. But yeah, I feel like, you know, recently I've sort of shifted my thinking and like maybe there is a way for us to experience farming and, and fill that cup without necessarily having the farm, like having your own farm. And so I've, I've just been thinking about like, what, what would happen if you, Alec, if you shared your energy with another farm that was already rocking and rolling and already had those um, systems in place and had infrastructure and was, you know, you could latch on, offer your skills, get some farming in, like fill that, you know, see some sheep, get out there, build some fence, like help with lambing, feel like that is your, if that's your life's passion, you are getting involved in, but you don't actually have to do the thing yourself. And so that's kind of one of sort of the new, I'm trying to crack this nut. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, how do we do this? How do we, who's doing this right? And so, and that brings you to my next question is like, I mean, in your thinking and your experience in this job, how, what do you think is like the next, what do you see as like creative solutions or like ideas that people have that are sort of working, um, maybe need some tweaking, but like, what, what is the industry? Where is it headed and where, what can we hope for? That's a great question. I love that. And I think that there's a lot of interest in the farmers that I work with. There's a lot of interest in collective models and collaborative models of farming. And I think there's huge value in that mm-hmm. from an economic perspective. Uh, it makes land a lot more affordable. It like makes land and equipment, all of the expenses, a lot more affordable. It is much, again, safer from not all your eggs in one basket perspective. You're just, you're just going to be more resilient as a farm and as a farm operation that way. And yeah, and, and I think that it gives people theoretically with that resilience space to space to breathe a little more and a little less pressure. I think the, the flip side of that and the flip side can be a real, a real positive and real joy, or it can be, you know, tricky and eventually it can be, I think a, a deal breaker, but that's interpersonal relations. Then the, the flip side of that is you have, to, you have to figure out how to, how to work with other people, who you're going to work with and how you're going to work with them. If you can crack that nut, then I think that farming can look entirely, entirely different. Um, right. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. It's really cool to know that the farmers that I work with are are also interested in that. And I would love to see it happen. Again, I think this country is particularly resistant to, to this idea of doing things together, especially when it comes to agriculture, where it's so... It's just so embedded in the in the oh, it's that rugged individualism. It's that American flag in the red barn. My red barn, exactly. My red barn. My white truck. My my rugged <laughs> yep. individualism and my tractor, and I'll die on my tractor. And yeah, uh, that I think that might have that might have worked for people for for some time. What people don't what people don't talk about is that that generation of farmers inherited their land or were able to purchase the land for very, very cheap. That's just not the case anymore. I think that the way that a lot of those farmers were, were, were 
growing food and what they were growing also don't reflect the future of farming. I think the future of farming is is far more creative, far more in tune with nature, far more responsive to climate change, far more inclusive as far as identities, like personal identities go. And and that is really exciting to me. I'm thrilled to see that be the future of farming. That brings me to my last question is, I know this might be kind of personal, but like, where do you see yourself in five years? Like, what are you excited about? What's your sort of like, what's your thing that you, we talked about earlier, like you, you need to build your life passions and your needs into your business plan. And so in that respect, kind of what are your things that you like have to work into your personal plan? I'm working on that. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely, again, this is like, I've, I've been now not farming for a year and, and I miss it. I I'm really interested in soil. I'm currently just in my own time taking Dr. Elaine Ingham's Soul Food Web course. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, so yeah, she's a bomb. She's a bomb. She's a bomb. I think that that work is truly, yeah, that's like, it's it's a game changer what that what the Soul Food Web sort of approach to soil can do. So I'm interested in that. I want to get back into growing things. I would like to try my hand at my own operation. I think that what I have determined for myself is that I love, I love animals. I would love to have animals. I think, like I said, I had to take, you know, take my own advice. I would need a farm team because I also want to be able to travel. Um, I have like my family still in Hong Kong. So at at the very least I'm taking um, an international trip to visit them ideally at least once a year. And someone needs to look after the animals when that's happening. I am interested also in value added products. I ran the value added product part of the business at Spoonful Farm and I got a lot out of that. I also think it's uh, a potential path towards more towards towards more economic stability and, and profitability for a farm. One of the biggest I'm not interested in in diverse veg in in mixed veg. <laughs> oh, why? But it works so well. <laughs> I just <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> it's great. I, it's I, it's I, great. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not yeah. knocking anybody, but I'm just saying it's really it's really freaking hard. <laughs> it's just really hard, and I don't. I'm not cut out for it, and yeah. I don't have the instincts for it. I don't think, and and so again, this is like I would love to. Be a, I mean, I will grow veggies for myself, and right. I wish that I I were as as intuitive and as I guess as energetic as the vegetable farmers that I know. But I'm just it's just not me. So I'm not going to try mm-hmm. to force it because it's just not going to happen. But I think growing maybe one or two crops and becoming kind of a, a specialist in those, I'm, I'm interested in that idea and processing them into some kind of wonderful value added product that is intriguing to me. Yeah. And kind of looking at it, I can tell that you're sort of looking at it more from a business perspective. Like we were talking about earlier, like looking at from looking at it from a business perspective that could incorporate farming instead of looking at from a farming perspective that could incorporate a business. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful and true, fair distinction. Yeah. At this point, I'm very much looking at it from a business perspective that could incorporate farming. And this is a whole nother conversation, but I know this is it's very it's very capitalist of me on a, on a personal level. I I have my yeah I have reservations about capitalism. Right, it sucks, but it yeah. just is. But it is, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so yeah. I'm taking kind of a both end approach. You know, I'm I, I want to continue working to systemically 
I guess, re reorganize capitalism to make it more fair. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I'm living a life right now. And right now that means that I am living, living in this world. And if I want to do things I want to do it, it yeah, I would be right. Yeah. Plane tickets cost money. Plane tickets cost um, money. Rent, rent costs rent money. Costs yep. Money. For the time being. For the time being. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I am trying to be, I'm realistic. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a dream smaller, but keep dreaming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, do you have anything, any more to add? Um, if you, you know, want to plug your organization a little bit more, or if you want to add anything more, any thoughts that came up, if not, that's totally fine. But I just wanted to see if you wanted that space. I will say if anybody is interested in being a farmer in Oregon, you'll, you'll find us pretty quickly. I think when you start looking for organizations, but if not rogue farm or rogue farm you'll, yeah, you'll be able to learn about us there and reach out if you want to chat, if you want to ask questions if you want to yeah for anything for anything at all yeah yeah you were saying that you find you help people you know swim through the milieu of farm resources um so yeah i'm sort of like i'm like a i'm like a librarian and a cheerleader that's what i see (laughs) yeah and i think that's yeah farmers need more need more of both um Mm -hmm. just to be yeah and also I, a little bit of a, a counselor even just to talk to farmers, especially during the season. I find that people are, I know I've done this so many times in the past, but I tell myself that I don't have time to take care of myself. I don't have time to talk to somebody about how I'm doing. And and the farmers that I do talk to, you know, we're always talking under the guise of like a business planning question during the season, but they always end up saying, gosh, like, it's just so nice to talk to somebody. It's so nice to talk to somebody about how I'm doing. And so yeah, if you're a farmer out there and you're in the middle of the season and you don't and you feel like you might have something weighing down on you and you don't think you have time to to address it and you're going to put it off for the winter, I encourage you to to talk to somebody. People want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much Jeffrey for being on our podcast today. Thanks Taylor. It's been a pleasure. so much to Jeffrey for being on our podcast today. If you haven't already checked out Rogue Farm Corps, they're awesome. Go online, check them out. They're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Rogue Farm Corps. That's R-O-G-U-E Farm C-O-R-P-S. If you're looking for a way to get involved in regenerative agriculture, whether that's through a job, internship, educational event, or conference, well, you've come to the right place. Kiber Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative ag community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through this podcast and our monthly newsletter. This month, we have some great summer job postings. One comes from our friends at Badger Creek Ranch near Salida, Colorado. This wrangler slash ranch intern needs to be an experienced horseback rider and comfortable with a hospitality role. During the internship, there will be opportunities to work on your horsemanship, stockmanship, and help with ranch work, such as fencing, feeding livestock, land health projects, and much more. They're about 45 minutes outside of the fun town of Salida. 
And another opportunity we have is the Apricot Lane Farms Apprenticeship. This is these are the folks that Shalini Kara, our last um, interview guest, was she she works here. So this would be a great opportunity to get to know her better and be under her leadership. They have an apprenticeship that opens every fall and winter, and it's an educational experience that offers aspiring farmers a paid opportunity to immerse themselves in regenerative ag. Apprentices live and work on the land and leave with a deep understanding of the ins and outs of the farm ecosystem and how it functions holistically. Over six months, apprentices rotate spending time working with various farm teams, soil fertility and biodynamic compost, native habitat restoration, holistic livestock and poultry management, market garden, culinary, and more. So if you're interested in this, their deadline is coming up really soon. So it's Saturday, April 30th. So be sure to look at our newsletter and get the more information so you can apply. And last but not least, please check out uh, Kibera's incredible list of educational opportunities this summer. We have so many awesome in-person workshops and uh, different events, field days and all that. We have one about biochar, wildlife and water and other soil health events. So you can check out their awesome list at kiberacoalition.org slash events. And every month, like I said, we include these job postings in our monthly newsletter. So if you don't already receive this newsletter, visit kiveracoalition.org and you can sign up right there. And to see a copy of last month's newsletter or to read any of the ones before that, you can see that all that at kiveracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. And finally, do you have a job opportunity that you'd like to share yourself? Send it to us at newagrarian at kiveracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts to become a sponsor or Patreon supporter. We'd like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Sanders, Leah Potterwaite, Tyler Eshelman, and Tafari Finn for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. And we're grateful to our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. Thank you for listening.